It's Arjun here, Head of Research, and back again for another episode on the InvestiKit podcast. Now, today we jump into the world of accounting, trusts, and for some people, that might be boring, but I encourage you to really tune in because it'll make you realize that there is some benefits of different structures, different holding entities, when you should consider them, why people consider them, and at what stage, right? Now, these are all the questions that I had on my journey, you know, growing as an investor. And even today, many clients have this on their mind. So I'm confident you'll get a lot of value out of this episode. Now, I'll have Alex, a senior advisor at Prime Advisory, join us. And he's a, an accountant with over 15 years of experience. He's also someone who loves his Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And as you guys know, I've talked about my love affair with UFC, uh, mixed martial arts, and recently me getting into Muay Thai. So uh, we do have a bit of banter on that as well. But most importantly, Alex is equipped with years of experience producing some solid outcomes for clients, whether you're a business owner or on a corporate career growing in any other sort of industries as well. He's helped so many people from different backgrounds. But the main thing is he keeps it real. And he also goes through a combination of the goods, the when you should, the when you shouldn't. And this is not as common in the accounting world. Often in the accounting world, what we see is you should always just do this or do this because my accountant said so. And many clients and many people we speak to don't often have the why behind it all. Well, guess what? You're going to get the why in today's episode and really learn about the different structures, the different things to consider. And if you're a fan of this episode, just let us know. Drop me an email on arjun at investikit.com.au and maybe let me know of anything that you'd like us to go deeper on bringing Alex on once more or if there's any sorts of other avenues of the accounting world that you feel that we didn't quite hit and you want us to go further into. I'd love to bring Alex on again to speak to us, speak to you and share more about his experience and where he feels the difference can be made with the right accounting team on your side. And I'd encourage you to reach out to him as well if you have you know, questions about your journey or things that you'd like to get going from your side with the right advisory accountant on your corner. Now, tune in. Alex from Prime Advisory sharing his thoughts on the world of accounting and structures and how it relates to property investors. Alex, before we go into the world of accounting, investing, and all that sort of stuff, I know that you know you're into uh, your Brazilian jiu-jitsu, or something we were talking about before, and I and I, I want to get into this first because I wonder how this translates into into what you do for work. Um, could you tell me a bit about the connection between your, your love of what you do, but also how that gets into what what you're doing for work, which is the accounting and financial planning practice and and I guess how it all comes together. Well, look, I have a deep-seated love of uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, what we call BJJ. And uh, for me, it, it's just this wonderful challenge. Um, every time I go to the gym, there'll be someone new or there's a different technique or there's a new challenge that I'm faced with. And um, having spent many years training, you have a you know, skill set of techniques that you can use to overcome these challenges. And um, one of the overriding principles of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as well is that you should leave your ego at the door. There's no space for ego. If you have an ego, um, that will get checked very quickly because there's always going to be someone bigger or stronger or, or more technical than you. And for me, that's what's kept it so challenging and so rewarding after so many years. 
Um, if you want to draw a parallel to the accounting industry, <laughs> look, the accounting industry is full of its own challenges. The government's always tweaking at the tax laws around the edges, whether it's the state tax laws or federal. Internally, you have your own challenges and opportunities in terms of building your team and looking after your clients. And it's never ending. There's always something new to be, uh, new challenge to be faced um, or some, you know, outcome to be uh, achieved with your clients or with your staff. And uh, it gets me out of bed every morning and uh, it keeps me motivated just as much as BJJ does. And just to confirm, you don't choke out any clients or, or fellow colleagues or anything, right? No, not often. I mean, sometimes in interviews. Um, but look, I've been fortunate enough to have uh, gained a few clients from BJJ over the years as well. So it's really special when you have a shared love um, in jiu-jitsu with one of your clients. But no, I mean, aside, you know, jokes aside, there's really no room for uh, choking my clients. <laughs> uh, someday we might be able to get some mats or a little ring in the office where we can work out at lunchtime, but I think that's about it. Oh, uh, that's good to know on that front. And I guess on the accounting world and the financial planning side of things, what got you into doing what you do there? How, how did this come about? Well, with the accounting side of things, Accountancy is something that I studied at, studied at university. It was something I was keen on from a young age. Um, I started started as a cadet working in a large firm in the city, which I did for about seven years before progressing to mid-tier firms. And look, I've always been driven and motivated to be an accountant, to look after clients with their tax affairs and accounting affairs. Um, I've always enjoyed giving advice and having relationships with my clients. I find it really rewarding. There's an element of being a subject matter expert, which is always staying up to date with the latest legislation and changes to the laws, as well as being a relationship manager in terms of um, building relationships with clients and developing your team who ultimately look after you and, you, and the work that you've got to complete for your, for your clients. So, it, you know, it's been my journey now for over 15 years and I don't plan on stopping anytime soon. I'll be doing this until I'm 65 or 70 years old or whenever they kick me out of here, put it that way. I guess you take take pride in uh, dropping the 15-year number, right? Because you don't look like you've been in that long, mate, that's for sure. Thanks, mate. I started when I was uh, 21, 22, so you can do the maths there. There you go. Well, um, right now, hot topic on the accounting world is property, and then hot topic on the property world, right now from what we see, actually not even a right now thing, I'll be honest, it's been a forever thing, Yeah. and it's this word trust. Now, for some people, it's a fancy, cool barbecue story where they can dig deep into this the mythological world of accounting and start to unpack some cool strategies. But let's start from the basics because there must be a lot of people wondering, hey, personal name, trust name. Firstly, what is a trust and what are the two most popular types of trust investors often seek or find end up being best for them? Yeah, great questions. And look, trusts are an interesting topic. They've been around for hundreds of years. Believe it or not, they kicked off with the Crusades and knights uh, in the United Kingdom who needed to leave their land to be managed while they were away overseas um, created the concept of trust. So it's been around for a long time and trusts are essentially a vehicle or, a, or an entity that holds assets on behalf of someone else. So you might think, well, how does that work? Do I own it or does the trust own it? It's a bit of both. In most cases, you, the controller of the trust, you will have what we call beneficial ownership of the trust's assets. You will ultimately benefit from the value that the trust holds. But legally, you don't own the assets. The trustee owns the assets. So there is a separation between yourself and the assets, and that's what the trust is used for, which would be separate from, say, a company, if you're using a company to buy property or investments in, because the, the the company owns the assets 
and its shareholders have beneficial entitlement to the assets um, through dividends if a dividend is to be declared. But, you know, that can change from time to time with the trust. You set up the terms of who controls the trust and who its beneficiaries are when you create the trust, establishing it with the trust deed. Um, and, you know, there are variations to what I'm telling you depending on the kind of trust that you set up as well. And, look, they're, they're wonderful mechanisms to use to hold assets because they provide great asset protection um, strategies just in case you're someone who might be likely uh, to be sued by someone or you might have bankruptcy risks or going through a divorce. Trusts are a really great uh, vehicle to hold assets that aren't in your name, yet you still have the overall ownership of those assets. Now, when you hear about trusts, there's all these different names that get thrown out. Um, and by the way, I didn't even know how old that went back. That's something cool, like to learn that even back then people were looking for that protection, looking for different ways to do things with their land and find cool, cool things around that. Now, I hear discretionary slash family. I hear units. I hear other stuff like that. Yeah. Where, is, uh, where, where does this become simple for the investor in a way that I'd say, what are the two most common that you hear or see property investors find best fitting their portfolio? Yeah, look, the two most common types of trusts are what we call discretionary trusts and fixed trusts or unit trusts. You can use that name interchangeably. Um, you know, to be honest with you, there are actually hundreds of different kinds of trusts all with, that are designed to achieve certain outcomes. But in terms of the property development space um, and property ownership space, it's really the discretionary trust and the unit trust. Um, and the key difference between the two of these things is that with a discretionary trust or a family trust, those names are used interchangeably. There's a tax reason for why you have a discretionary trust and a family trust, but we're getting stuck in the weeds a little bit. You just need to think of discretionary trusts and family trusts as the same thing. But the key benefit with a discretionary trust is that the trustee has discretion over which beneficiary will benefit from the trust's profits and capital gains. The difference between a discretionary trust and a unit trust is a unit trust has fixed entitlements. So the, the trust or the settler, specifically speaking, will create the trust, put in place appointors who appoint a trustee. The trustee then issues units to unit holders and those unit holders then have a fixed entitlement at a certain percentage to the trust's assets. So to recap, a discretionary trust has a discretionary element to how the profits and income of the trust are distributed to beneficiaries. In a unit trust, the unit holders receive profits and capital gains pursuant to the number of units they hold in that trust. And I guess the key difference between them is that discretionary trusts are used in families like mum and dad investors, where they're happy to distribute money and capital gains between mum and dad and their other entities in their group at their discretion. Um, they're not so much concerned with who owns what. Whereas a unit trust or a fixed trust where you have unit holders, that's more often used where you have unrelated parties or third parties investing in uh, investments and in property together where they've contributed X amount of money to buy the property and that then determines their ownership of the unit trust and the number of units that are actually given in that trust as well. And then obviously how much profit and capital gain they receive in the future. That's right. So that that's the big percentage, like that's the big point of difference, right? It's like that fixed versus flexibility, the related versus unrelated. That seems to be a big part coming out. Um, I want to take you to maybe some examples of something interesting with the trust world. I think back to the trust names, and this is probably one opportunity where you get to sound or look the coolest you've possibly ever been in your life. 
And it's when you get to make the name of your trust and you come up with cool company names. And I remember like, you know, Step Brothers, the movie, and they had like Prestige Worldwide as one of their things. And so I, I remember one of my good mates had Prestige Worldwide, PTY, and all these other cool things attached to it. Yeah. And has there been any funny stories you've heard of some pretty random, random names on on like, you know, your company, PTY, LTDs, and you're asking your client for a story and you're like, what the hell is this like even for? <laughs> it happens all the time. I mean, to be fair, you have a lot of clients that are pretty conservative and they'll just call their trust the Smith Family Trust or the, the Robinson Family Trust, which is really boring. Um, but you do get clients out there that choose something a little strange. I mean, me personally, my trust and my trustee company are named after Brazilian jiu-jitsu techniques, <laughs> which is pretty weird, but it's special to me. Um, but, you know, I certainly do have uh, many clients who um, have chosen something funny or quirky to, to call their trust. And, you know, ultimately it doesn't really matter. When you're setting up a trust, you can call the trust whatever you like, um, so long as you're not infringing on anyone's trademarks. Um, you can't exactly call it a Coca-Cola trust. But then, you know, when it comes to setting up a company, there are, slight, there are a few more rules that you need to be mindful of in that you can't have a company name that's already been taken um, or, you know, is already used in a registered business name. So, look, if you're out there and you're thinking about setting up a, a company and a trust, be creative. Uh, there's nothing more I like as an accountant seeing something that's not as basic as the Jones Family Trust, and it's a good talking point for us as well. Yeah, I remember. Um, if you're looking for actual examples, I can make something up, but you've got to be careful of uh, you know client confidentiality. Makes sense. <laughs> Makes sense. Um, I, I remember going back to uh, my own trust, and I, I used to try and figure out, like, just words that I'd heard on American TV shows because I set this up so year, so many years ago yeah. and things that were in the banking world like the word capital, the word holdings, the word like, you know, values or into, just to make it sound as cool as possible. Yeah. It, was a, it was a fun little water cooler story. But um, when it comes to trust, when does it and when does it not make sense? Because yeah. I hear so much conflicting advice on this and mm. it leaves people in a state of confusion. For some people, it's like, do I get it in my first purchase and I set it up this way moving forward? But then for others, accountants say, hey, buy a few in your personal names, use up some land tax thresholds first in your personal names, and then we can transition to trust later on. What are your thoughts here? And I know it may not be the way, but I'm yeah. interested to know your thoughts. And look, one of the things you just said, which was use up some of the land tax thresholds in your own name is actually one of the key driving reasons. But I'll get to that in a moment. I mean... When you're weighing up whether to set up a trust or not, there's really three things to think about, which is do you need a trust for asset protection? Yes or no, and we can explore that in a second. Do you need one for tax benefits, tax advantages? Um, and lastly, are there any commercial reasons for why you need a trust, which you'd need to explore because holding the property in your own name is insufficient? So look, the first one, asset protection, um, it's a really big one. Trusts are great in terms of providing asset protection from creditors, employees, people that are litigating against you and so on. To a lesser extent, family law court action because the family law court will typically look through structuring that you put in place when determining the, uh, the family's matrimonial asset pool and how that will be divided between the two, the two spouses. Um, but look, if you're someone who is working, if, if you're a business owner, for example, or you're a lawyer or a doctor, someone who's giving professional advice and, um, you know, not just an employee where you're concerned about litigation risk. Trusts are a fantastic way to house your investments 
in an entity that's not in your own name and is therefore not subject to, um, you know, any court action that could take place where, you know, the assets are sold in a recovery action, which is what you'd want to avoid. So asset protection, that, that's a big one. I mean, obviously, if you're someone like a, a lawyer or a doctor, you're, you're always going to have things like professional indemnity insurance and so on, but there are instances where those insurances fall over. And if the insurance doesn't work, then you're going to fall back on how is that asset structured? Is it structured in a trust? Yes. Now I have some uh, protect. Now my asset is protected because it's in the trust. So asset protection, it's a big one. Sometimes people call it refencing assets in the trust. You can, you know, there are different ways you can describe it. In terms of the tax benefits, there are lots of great tax benefits for holding investments in the trust. Typically, what we call capital appreciating assets, like real estate, things that go up in value. The reason for that is because when that property is eventually sold for what will be a capital gain, especially if it's in Sydney over a long period of time, that capital gain is taxable income. Tax needs to be paid on it. The trust allows you to distribute that capital gain to people in your family over the age of 18, where you're making the most of their marginal tax rates. The alternative, say you buy the property in your own name and you're making $180,000 a year, it just means that that capital gain will be taxed at top marginal rates in your personal return. Obviously, once you've allowed for the 50% CGT discount, but using a family trust means that, you know, if your kids are 18, 19 years old at that point in time and they're at uni, they're not making much money, the trust will allow you to distribute that taxable profit into their returns and it will be taxed at a lower marginal tax rate. I mean, there are complexities that you need to be mindful of in terms of how you manage the trusts and the ATO's guidelines on trust distributions to um, children and so on. But if you have an, an accountant or a tax advisor that knows the rules, they can give you advice on how to best use your trust to, to save tax. Now, it's not all about saving tax on capital gains. It's also about the rental income that these properties make through the, own, the lifetime of the ownership of the property. But it would be remiss of me to say that there are some disadvantages in terms of land tax, which you alluded to before. Um, if you go and set up a discretionary trust and buy property in that discretionary trust, land tax will be payable on the first dollar of the property's unimproved land value. So when you when you try to make sense of what that is, if you've gone and bought a $2 million house in Sydney, the unimproved land value might be, say, a million bucks or $1.4 million. That's what you're paying land tax on. If you buy the property in a discretionary trust, you'll be paying 1.6% land tax um, on the whole value of the unimproved land value. Whereas if you own the property in your own name, you have a land tax threshold in New South Wales and in other states in Australia. So as you said before, if you're buying investment properties, typically you buy your own home in your own personal name or you'd have it in your spouse's name. And then you'd buy, say, one or two investment properties in your own name first to get the benefit of the land tax threshold. And then additional properties will be put into a trust. Or you can just use the trust from day one if you're more concerned about asset protection and wanting to house these properties in a trust so that they're not in your own personal name. Yeah, that trade-off is a hard one to measure, right? Because it's so unique to each person. I can remember a scenario where someone was purchasing a million-dollar property in, say, Adelaide. And um, that million-dollar property, firstly, buys a lot in Adelaide. <laughs> but when it comes to a million-dollar property in Adelaide, they firstly had to consider that the land tax thresholds were just two worlds apart. They were playing close to nothing in their personal name. But then in the trust they equated, it would be about four, 4000 a year, like four, yeah. four and a half thousand a year. So you're thinking to yourself, okay, well, the way interest rates are, 
I might not be able to positively distribute money for some time. Mm-hmm. And then let's just say you go into a decade of you know land taxes at forty thousand or forty five, fifty thousand, and then you get to the point of positive, and now you're kind of clawing back for your next ten years how much extra you paid. Yeah. So there's some people where it's like, well. If it was an asset protection thing as a key priority for me, that makes a lot of sense. And i got to forego or maybe think of those costs as part of doing business. But then for other people, it's just like, how does it, it doesn't weigh up right. Like you've got to go personal here. Otherwise, you're going to take 10 years to even catch up. So I can see what you mean, right? There's so many different parts of it where you go, for me, it's important versus for you, not as important, even though we could both be buying the same property, right? Yeah. And look, um, it's a road that I've walked down with my clients many times. Um, you know, I've, I've modelled out uh, for my clients buying a property, typically commercial property, in their own name versus holding it in a trust or in, in an SMSF. And when you do the modelling, the land tax really does make an impact when, you, when you're going to own the property for, say, 20 years. Because if you if you're putting the property into a trust to be able to distribute the capital gains in 20 years in a tax advantage advantageous manner, that's a long time to wait and a lot of land tax that you're paying every year just to try and save tax after 20 years when you may may or may not even sell the property you might not need to sell the property so it, there are it, it is a big thing to consider you know for one of my clients when i was doing the modeling for him um, this is a, an individual that works in the legal profession we just decided it was much simpler to put the property into a trust from day one because he is just at risk of litigation because he is a litigator there's a lot going on in this world and he doesn't want to have any assets in, in his own name and, um, you know, that's costing him more land tax during the ownership period of the property, but so be it. I mean, he really just needs to make sure that his assets are protected and trusts are a great tool for that. Well, uh, I am rambling a little bit here, but there was one last thing to talk about, which was the commercial considerations, which we uh, yes. want. And look, and just to, re- just to come back slightly, the question I think was, why would you use a trust? And I said the third reason was if there are commercial reasons for doing so. The commercial reasons for doing so would typically warrant a unit trust. Say, for example, you're in partner, you're in business with a partner, and you and your partner wish to buy the commercial property where your business is running from, or you and your friend just really want want to buy an investment property together. Okay, you can do that two ways. You can buy the property as tenants in common. Okay, sometimes you guys might have heard of joint tenants and tenants in common. Arjun, you know this like the back of your hand, but I'll, I'll just give a quick summary. If you're in a joint tenancy and you're owning property, it's typically between two spouses, such that if one of the spouses die, dies, ownership of that property automatically transfers to the surviving tenant, the surviving joint tenant, the other spouse. Um, and it just makes things like estate planning a lot easier. Conversely, if you own a property as tenants in common, you have a fixed percentage ownership of that property, which could be 50-50 or 80-20 or 70-30, um, depending on how you want to do it. So it's a useful mechanism for buying property with someone else as tenants in common. A unit trust replicates that in the sense that you can determine the ownership percentage of the property. But it's again, it's housed in a unit trust. It's in this separate legal entity which provides asset protection benefits so trusts and unit trusts in particular are great when you want to invest with a friend or a colleague or a business partner that that makes a lot of sense and when looking after investors on salaries versus investors are there any key considerations that you go oh you know business owners need to look at their investing plans quite differently when the accounting part comes into this versus those who are pay as you go when it comes to their property. Pay-as-you-go employees, people that are earning a salary, 
um, they really need to be mindful of um, their ability to manage their property from a cash flow perspective, especially if it's negatively geared. So you just need to be you need to be in a position where you have mapped out the ownership of this property and your ability to pay for it based on your current salary and how your salary might change over time. Hopefully your salary is going up, but it might not do, might not. And um, sometimes you see for those kinds of people, them doing things like fixing their interest rates so that they have certainty over how much they're paying, even if it means they're paying a little bit more interest um, to the bank in doing so. When it comes to Oh, and sorry, the last thing I say about salary employees is they're more often looking for invest in residential investment properties, okay, because that's what they're used to and, and that's what they have exposure to. Uh, for my commercial and business owner clients, uh, typically they're looking at buying the premises that they're in where they're running their business or they might have a more broader view as to what they should be buying and that usually means commercial property as well. But it, it, there are some complexities in, in the sense that Commercial or business owners have different borrowing requirements as well from the bank. Um, you know, when you earn a salary, it's quite easy for you to loan, especially at a higher loan-to-value ratio as well, because the bank understands what your salary is. It's evidence with pay slips, and um, they're more likely to lend to you. But if you're a business owner, say you own shares in a small to medium enterprise selling widgets out at North Ride, your remuneration package from your company might be in the form of salary and dividends and other allowances, which may complicate things with your lender. Um, so conversely, it might mean that you're making lots of money and the bank's willing to lend you more as well. But um, speaking to a mortgage broker or your buyer's agent will typically assist in that process because of the complexity of being a business owner, which makes getting a loan a little bit more complex as well. And I guess the final thing I'd say is when you're a business owner, there is a strong incentive to try and buy property in your self-managed super fund as well. If you're buying commercial property in your SMSF and that property is being sold once you've hit a condition of release, which means you can access your super tax-free, you're able to sell that property and not pay any tax, any capital gains tax, um, subject to the current limits that they have in place with how much money you can hold in super. So obviously if you go out and buy a $10 million property, it's not going to be completely tax-free, but if you buy a $1 or $2 million commercial property in your SMSF, you might be able to sell that asset tax-free in 30 or 40 years' time when you retire. And all of this is said subject to the, the federal government not changing the rules on us, so that's something always to be mindful of as well. But, you know, seek advice, speak to your accountant, speak to your financial advisor. They're best placed to give you the advice on how you can structure your property, property investments. Um, that achieves the outcomes that you're after. Now, Alex, in your uh, life cycle of looking after clients over the last 15 years, mm. there are those who are in the earlier parts of their journey, but there are others who've had some tremendous success in investing and or business yeah. or their careers. What are the most common traits that you notice when you reflect on some of the most successful clients that you've worked with? Yeah, look, I'd say the ones, the ones that have had the most success are really ones who have had a clear goal, a clear, short, medium, long-term goal. What am I going to achieve in one year, five years, and 10 years, maybe even 20 years? And what are the steps that are required to actually achieving those goals? And then from that, develop these are clients that have developed an investment plan, an investment strategy to see them out for the rest of their lives. And they've also been willing to take some risk, like that old adage, with risk comes reward. I mean, to be able to buy a property in Sydney, unless you've inherited lots of money or you're making a fortune from your employer, you need debt and that is inherently risky. But the people that I've seen who have pulled it off have received advice, 
They have uh, bought property in great locations with good yields and, and good fundamentals about the property themselves. And they've not been over leveraged. Um, you know, they've forecasted how much they can borrow um, and whether they can maintain those repayments depending on fluctuations with the cash rate from the RBA. And look, people take different views on this, but you might say that a long-term interest rate that you should be able to repay at is at 7% or 8% long-term. But there's the ones that have been successful have also been ones who have been willing to take that risk and actually jump in and not be hesitant to actually get into the property market. They say it's you can't really time the market. It's just the time that you're in the market. And the longer that you're in the market, the longer that you're paying off a mortgage, which is in some sense forced you know, compulsory savings, all things being equal and assuming the Australian economy uh, stays strong, your property will increase in value over time. And if history is anything to go by, it's what I've seen over the, the course of my lifespan with the property investments that my my grandparents have made, my parents have made, and my clients have made as well. And it's something that, you know, if you speak, to, if you listen to Warren Buffett videos, for example, it's something that he says, if you want, if you asked me how to invest $10,000 back in 1960, you would just put it in an index fund because you would trust that the American economy would grow and uh, prosper over the forthcoming decades. And if you take that same view with Australia, um, we'll be fine. <laughs> long term <laughs> barring yeah. kind of, you know nuclear apocalypse or anything like that which is unlikely to happen yeah and uh we're pretty far and we've got a lot of things that if people try and attack us that could probably kill them before we need to kill them right yeah. so uh <laughs> yeah. now when it comes to um the accountants that exist out there yeah you know, we might we're not going to get into some bully mode but we want to pick up on a few traits that we see that perhaps Maybe it's not setting up people for success. Are there any common things that you see accountants typically do that go, hey, hold on a minute, this could have been better? And we're not talking about a you know particular accountant or anything, but yeah, just interested right. to know if there's something that you use. Yeah, look, two things spring to mind. And um, hopefully the accountants out there that might be listening to this, you know, it'll resonate with them. Getting a quantity surveyor's report when you buy an investment property. Um, if you don't know what a quantity surveyor is, it's someone who is is able to cost up a building and from that costing determine how much you can write off for tax purposes over the next 40 years, up to 40 years. There have been some changes in tax legislation in recent years which have made quantity survey reports slightly less attractive for uh, existing or secondhand properties, but there is still a lot to be gained by getting one of these reports and not all accountants do it. There are lots of uh, big quantity survey firms in Australia, which are very competitive. If you own a strata title property or a unit, you can typically get, get one of these reports between four to $600 or even cheaper if they've done a report for an existing apartment in that building. Um, if you own a torrent title property, freestanding home, it might be a little bit more expensive, say between six to $900, depending on who you use. But once you spent that money and you've got the report, it then empowers your accountant to write off um, the capital works, you know, or the the capital allowances, a fancy word for depreciation, it allows them to write that depreciation off in your return or in your trust's return for the ownership period of the property. And I've never seen it not work for a client. Um, so accountants out there should be doing it for their clients or recommending it to their clients. The second thing which doesn't always happen with accountants and it's something that really should happen is that you're always managing the cost base of your property, what we call the tax cost base of your property which is tracking the costs that you've incurred over time that aren't tax deductible. Because, for example, if you do a renovation to your investment property or you 
put in a new room or a new bathroom, something which we would call capital in nature. It's not a tax deduction. Instead, you can take that cost and add it to the cost base of the property, which in turn decreases how much capital gains tax will be payable when that property is eventually sold. And as an accountant, if you're updating this cost base register systematically every year, um, it just means that you're not trying to do the exercise in one go and you know try and recreate 20 years of cost base activity um, when the client's selling property, which is something that we come across frequently uh, where clients don't have this information and we say, look, we can save you fifty dollars or $100,000 in capital gains tax, but we're going to have to do this work because your other accountant did it, didn't do it. So have that chat with your accountant. You know, Am I claiming as much depreciation as I can with a quantity surveyors report? Um, and are you accurately tracking the cost base of my property year on year? And if they draw a blank or they say no, <laughs> then look elsewhere. And some very, very helpful tips there in terms of what to consider in that discussion point. And also, I learned a lot on the trust as well, just in regards to the different considerations, because sometimes we get so stuck into the dollars and cents of it without realizing the holistic approach around this all. Alex, thank you yeah. so much for joining us and really appreciate you sharing your wisdom and knowledge. And uh, yeah, definitely not looking forward to the next uh, mat session or something that we have, because it uh, sounds like a lot of experience there that I'd have to stay away from. Arjun, it's been an absolute pleasure and uh, someday we'll be on the mats and uh, yeah, I'll show you some moves. <laughs> you can Appreciate show you some moves as well, all right? <laughs> <laughs>